Good morning from Yerushalayim and Beit Shemesh. Benjamin Rose and Gedali Gutentag with Homefront, the first of a series covering Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Benjamin, good morning to you. Good morning, Gedali. So may I start with a fervent and slightly strange wish from a podcaster that this podcast, Yerotza, in this po- podcast should have the shortest life of any podcast and that we have nothing else to cover in this war. Amen. We're not looking for uh, 13 weeks or renewals. We hope the Rabboni Shalom will uh, support us and that whatever needs to be done will get done quickly and uh, with Godspeed, as the saying goes, and that we shouldn't know from any more sorrow like what we've experienced in the last week or so. Until Hashem does indeed bring this to a close in a successful way, we'll be here with a short morning roundup of what's happening on the security, diplomatic, and human front and home front here in Israel. So over to you, Benny Ammon. What we're going to do is looking back and looking forward with some of the biggest stories that we can expect to see over the next 24 hours. And so, Benyam, what's top uppermost in your mind now? So on the security front, especially up north, things seem like they're growing and the threat is becoming more serious. There was more activity both overnight and early this morning in terms of rocket attacks in the area of Metula, which is along the northern border near Kiryat Shmona with Lebanon. There's also talk about a small town in the northwest coast near the beach called Hanita, which has also been attacked. So Hezbollah is definitely starting up. They're keeping it on a slow burn right now, and we're keeping our retaliation minimal to the points of their attacks. But this is something that could still get out of hand, and that's really the biggest danger from all the security sources that I've spoken to is the Northern Front despite what we've seen in the South and as horrendous as that's been, but the biggest threat to Israel is from the North. And wh- why is that? That's because the Hamas is the little cousin or the baby brother of Hezbollah in terms of capability. Is that correct? If, if uh, Hamas has 15,000 rockets, let's say probably more then Hezbollah has 150,000. Plus Hezbollah is uh, a lot more battle trained and battle hardened. Uh, many Hezbollah forces have been fighting in Syria for years. And they have a very strong command structure. They're experienced in battle and their weaponry is much greater being supplied directly from Iran than what Hamas has been able to muster up. I mean, just this total aside, but it's, it's something that worries me. And I was trying to get a sense from talk to various soldiers. The IDF is a war machine. It's reputed to be and known to be one of the, you know, world's strongest militaries. And yet. Many and most of its commanders have not faced anything like the combat experience of some of the Hezbollah's people who just were involved for years in the slaughter in Lebanon and Syria. That is something that worries me. And I wonder if that is something that the IDF themselves are thinking about. They're definitely thinking about it and they're preparing for it. You know, there's drills are very good, but there's nothing like uh, real-time battles and Hezbollah has real-time battle experience. But I think the important thing to remember in all this is that no matter what Hezbollah has, we have much more in terms of manpower, in terms of firepower, in terms of modern weapons. And let's also uh, keep in mind that the United States has given very serious and straight warnings to Lebanon and Tehran to stay out. And if not, they've threatened to take military action themselves. And of course, Hezbollah and Iran will have to think twice about launching any kind of major attack against Israel if they know that they might have to face U.S. forces in addition to Israeli forces. But yeah, can, I, can I jump in there and just ask, 
Do you think that knowing the sort of reticence, definitely on all sides of the U.S. political world and in general, the, the, does the does the U.S. have the stomach to come to get into a fight like this? And therefore, do the Israelis and the Lebanese, Syrians, and Iranians actually believe that they do? Because having the biggest and strongest army in the world doesn't help if no one, if everyone knows that you're not going to use it. So I wonder what level of deterrence the American presence in the region and threats actually are. That's a very important point, Gedalia, because I was just mentioning it the other night to someone who I was having uh, this exact discussion with that if you remember back to probably around 2014, maybe a bit earlier when President Obama was still in the White House, he warned Syria that if they were to dare use chemical weapons, that, that would draw the U.S. into the conflict. So what happens? Syria uses chemical weapons and the U.S. stays out. And they saw the same thing also under Trump. There were times where North Korea got aggressive and basically Trump threatened that he was going to step in and do things. And he also didn't intervene militarily. So the U.S., I don't know if it's that they don't have the stomach for conflict. It's that their goal is to try to continue to extricate themselves from the war of terror that started in 2001. It's like in America, they're saying, how much longer is this going to go on? And everything they've done, including President Biden removing the uh, U.S. troops from Afghanistan, is meant to take the U.S. out of combat, especially in the Middle East. Whether they're going to have a choice here is uh, something else. They could be forced into a situation where they have to fight. We should also remember with the U.S., the U.S. was reluctant to get into World War I and World War II also. But they finally stepped in when they saw that there was no other choice and when they finally did, that basically turned the tide of both wars. So I think that uh, no matter what, he can try to take a measure of the U.S. stomach uh, size or a stress test, but I still wouldn't challenge them too far because if and when they decide that they need to step in, they're going to. And they can do it with obviously much more firepower than any other country in the world. Right. So the clips that we see of 2,000 Marines are loading up to go somewhere, presumably aboard ships, which is where Marines tend to be, you know, the Eastern Mediterranean. You can never ignore a superpower. You can never count it out. I think there's one thing that has to be added when you talked about Trump. Trump was unpredictable, and that was one of his greatest assets in terms of his personal deterrence. Because I think it was Nixon had this madman theory in which he said, the other side's got to believe that I actually am madder and crazier. Madman as in crazy, right? Crazy than they are. And I think Trump showed that in this region particularly, that when he pulled the trigger out, as it were, ordered the assassination of General Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, and that was literally an assassination heard around the world because it was so outrageous and so crazy, and no one had dared to do it for 30 years. He was seen as untouchable. It did a lot. People were scared of him. People were scared of him. I'm sure the Chinese thought of it. I'm sure the Russians thought of it. This guy can go crazy. And I just question whether Joe Biden's, he's a conventional politician every way, whether that even exists. So I think it's an open question. I think the important thing is that it still is a question. Therein lies U.S. deterrence. There is the hint that over the horizon, something nasty could be happening. Yeah. Making people fear the bad men is definitely a strategy. There's also a tactic that Ronald Reagan employed of basically launching a cruise missile into Muammar Gaddafi's tent. And while it didn't kill Gaddafi, it did kill his son. And uh, sometimes you just have to act and not just try to make people uh, question your motives. But speaking about motives, one of the things I'm concerned about is that with President Biden potentially scheduled to arrive in Israel on Wednesday, how does this handcuff uh, the Israeli military? It, it's highly doubtful that uh, the IDF will take any kind of major action 
when there were major world leaders on its turf. Otherwise, it looked embarrassing that they were in on the planning. So today, for example, the chancellor of Germany is here in Israel. Uh, tomorrow, if Biden arrives, if he stays for a day or two, that's just going to lead to another delay in Israel launching whatever military campaign they plan on launching. So, I mean, that's a very important point, Benjamin, because I think we ourselves, and if you speak to anyone here, a soldier, civilian, people are getting itchy or antsy or just jumpy about the fact that here we are, we know what needs to be done. There's a national consensus that Gaza needs to be, you need to go into Gaza and clean it out one level or another. And yet here we are 10 days later, massive army assembled, nothing happening, nothing happened. What do you make of that? Are those two things connected? I think they're connected. I think the major problem still is in Israel really, again, these are from some sources that uh, I've spoken to, that the IDF and the politicians really don't know what to do. There's a lot of options open to them, but what do they do? If they go in and clear out Gaza, so then who takes over afterwards? That's always the biggest fear. And uh, anytime you went to war, and I've heard Netanyahu say this uh, during guidance he's given to uh, the media, that uh, he was always cautious and he always wanted to avoid going into Gaza because he, he says war is unpredictable. Once you go in, you never know what's going to happen. We could have a more powerful army on paper, but it doesn't make a difference. Once the battle starts, anything can happen. And it's the fear of the unknown that I think is holding them back. It's not like they have a plan, okay, in six days we can take over Gaza and take care of everything. It's not going to be that way. So that's, I think, what's holding them back more than anything else. So what message is Biden, you know, along with a truckload of aid and arms and goodwill, that he's undoubtedly, and, and it has to be said, let's be fair, I think his speech in which he stood there and he spoke, he just described the reality of what he'd seen and the human reaction to it. I think the speech was well-received and perhaps, may I say, that draw a contrast with the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, in which he chose to, instead of displaying any empathy, he chose to bizarrely just attack Netanyahu over an old personal grudge and to praise Hezbollah's good, you know, good fighters, whatever it was, or impressive, whatever word he used. So I think he's arriving with a lot of goodwill. There's goodwill on his side, goodwill here in Israel. But what message is he going to be delivering behind the scenes to Bibi? I believe that he's going to deliver a message of go slow, and he's going to deliver a message of restraint. And he's going to say that we will support you as long as there are no major casualties or very exceptional humanitarian issues coming out of Gaza. Uh, but the second that the headcounts mount and uh, the second that uh, the starvation and deprivation of Gaza citizens becomes the bigger issue, then there's going to be a limit to U.S. support. And I think that's going to happen. I've been on many news conferences over the past few days with the foreign press, and people are definitely more sympathetic to Israel. But at the same time, we're getting the same questions from the same people about the humanitarian issues. So that's still right up front. It's not going away. Israel is definitely going to have to contend with the people who are calling them to be careful and to show restraint. That leads to a very, very difficult dynamic developing because let's just think ahead. If they do enter Gaza, casualties will inevitably mount just because this is close quarters battle. They're using human shields. We know that not everyone will have evacuated. Hamas have probably got a good few thousand people to keep it gunpoint there to use against their will as human shields. Even if they give water and stuff going through the southern Gaza Strip, where a million, I think they're aiming a million people to move from the north to the south, you're going to get a situation in which casualties will mount. The question is, at that point, up to now, the dynamic has always been, whenever casualties mounted, not only did you have overseas pressure, 
pressure overseas from the international community to, to Israel to, you know, the countdown to the end. It was obvious that operations had to end. You also joined by the drumbeat inside Israel, come from the left, come from those who are saying, we can't continue this. And those political pressure was on the left. But what I sense here is this is unique, Binyamin, because there has been a sea change. Those kibbutzim, those who bore the brunt of the massacres, unfortunately, were the old, what would be called the old left. And there, for the first time, I sense a, a thirst to demolish Hamas as much on the left as on the right. And if that continues, if you have wall-to-wall -wall support inside Israel to do what's necessary, that will collide with the inevitable hostility from the international community. And then we were in unpressed, uncharted territory. What does Netanyahu do? Listens to the overseas community? He listens to Israeli consensus. And how do you read that? I think that's the biggest reason why Netanyahu decided to take Gantz and Gidon Saar and others into his government at this point, because the more he can take them and subordinate them into his government, the longer he has a chance to be on top and to be the one who's calling all the shots. So I think the question you raise will come into play that if there's a split in those factions, if at some point there is mounting issues and mounting criticism from the international community. And basically people like Gantz and others default to their left of center positions and say, we have to start listening to this. Uh, then either the new unity government could collapse or it could cause a lot of pressure internally on Netanyahu to pull the plug and to slow down any military campaign that we're involved in. So that's a big question. It's a big if, and I'm going to, for now, leave it in the, it remains to be seen category. Right. Moving on, I think that we're 10 days away from, this is what, what the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, rightly said a couple of days ago in Parliament, he got up and he said, this is a pogrom, right? And it's the worst pogrom we've seen, and it's shocking to see it here in, in Israel, which was meant to end the days of these things. Endless stories of families, you know, being torn apart and killed and taken captive with horror. And yet so many families have sent their kids down to the southern border. We've got a, a gigantic civilian army over there. And, and when you're talking to some of the people, the soldiers down there, to get a sense of what they're actually doing, I get a sense that it's not so simple that they've cleaned out the area around Gaza. The IDF isn't saying much, but I think reading between the lines, what they're scared of, most of all, is the existence of tunnels that they haven't discovered. And so the Gaza envelope, what's called Otev Aza, is swarming with units going on combat patrols. And we know for a fact that there are Hamas left behind. So the question is, Benyam, what type of mopping up operation, what type of combat strength will they need to actually pacify a region that we thought would be clean already for a week ago? That's obviously one of the dilemmas that's kept the IDF out up to this point. And they're going to have to figure out what to do. The idea sounds like they want to clear the population out and then go in and building by building, street by street, look for tunnels, look for uh, the infrastructure, look for weapons, look for armories and destroy everything. And then they might tell everyone, you know, something, okay, now we send you to the South. Now everyone clear out and move back North. And uh, we're going to do the same thing in the South. That's what I think they would like to do. Again, the question is uh, how long something like this takes and how long we have until the opposition starts to get stronger and uh, call on us to either slow down or halt. But yeah, I, mean, I think there's a lot of, naturally, a lot of doom and gloom over here. There's a lot more doom and gloom to talk about, but there's been a lot of heartwarming sights and a tremendous, a tremendous unity. What has impressed you about this in terms of any stories of good cheer that you have to share? 
you know, people just in general are being uh, a lot kinder and a lot nicer to each other. Uh, uh, overall, uh, Israelis can be in a hurry, let's say. And, you know, we know that uh, Israel is a smaller country. Namani Rishlam, you're in Ramat Beishemesh. Uh, neither of them uh, are known for their wide open spaces. I mean, you might have uh, better vistas than Ramat Beishemesh than we do. But, you know, we live in tight quarters with each other. And, uh, that raises a certain amount of tensions, but people have been just really, really just wonderful and, and nice to each other. One says hello to each other. People are opening doors for each other on the roads. People are, are letting cars in instead of racing ahead to make sure that you don't cut in front of them. You know, those are really the small things, but you know, those small things makes to me such a big difference in the quality of life, because I think, you know, being polite to other people is a major necessity. There are stories I've seen about kibbutzim that basically kosher their kitchens in order to prepare kosher food for soldiers. I, I think by now we've probably all seen those stories. And I always say to myself that it's a shame that it takes something like this uh, for us to uh, get to the point where we're just like kinder and gentler. Hopefully that's a lesson that we uh, take from this, no matter what happens in the upcoming battles. Uh, we learn uh, to have a little bit more patience for each other and to look at each other in a more favorable way and just to be kinder and nicer and a little bit less self-centered and a little bit more taking into account the needs of other people and that they're in a rush too and that they have pressures too and uh, that we need to cut them some slack every once in a while too. So if we can keep that up, then, you know, I'll say that that'll be a, a huge benefit from all this. You know, I, mean, I don't know if I'm as optimistic as you about keep, keep it up. But what I have to say is that I think there was a, a remarkable thing. If you, if you imagine two weeks ago, Israel was split with riven. The, the splits in Israel had not been seen ever over the, you know, the justice reform movement, the protest that had grounded the air force that had torn apart Israeli society. And there's no sign of that. There is literally no sign of that. And yes, the issues were real. They were real. There were issues, cultural, it was a culture war. It was a gigantic clash within Israeli society. And it was extremely ugly, but there is absolutely no sign of that. I was talking to a soldier who's in a unit, again, like most units, you're either in the North or the South. So he's in a unit on the Gaza border. And I asked him, what's the makeup of his unit? He's a religious soldier. And he said that he's in his platoon or squad or whatever they call it, it was 22 soldiers. Besides him, there's another one, religious one. He says the vast majority of the other 20 were regularly attended the justice reform protests in Tel Aviv. And he said, and we know for sure that there was a, a chasm between us over the last year. And yet they're sitting together and they're discussing it. And they're saying that math, that doesn't make a difference. And this soldier told me, he said, one of these secular soldiers said to him, but you know, it's not real because when this war's over, we'll go back to being how it was. And he said, no, but you have to understand this is the real us. That was not real. And it sounds mushy and all happy clappy, but there's something real there because one thing that I was always skeptical about was the idea that Israeli society had reached this point of no return and that the, the splits were too great. You see, if that was the case, there could not possibly have been this melding of units that we're seeing that the religious and secular come together. They don't agree on anything because the splits in Israeli society are real. And yet there is hope. And for me, I see there is hope. There is one society here and they get together, they understand the Jewish people is under attack. The biggest attack we've been under since, since the Holocaust. And ultimately that has shocked everyone. It's like a gigantic bucket of cold water over Israeli society. I see that as a point of hope. I think this will be a change, a, a turning point. Having gone through such a descent, I think there's a unity over here, which I think Israelis will always argue, right? But the kind of the, the feared breakdown of Israeli society, I think we've come back from the brink. I myself sense that very much. So over to Binyamin, any final words? 
You know, that was very well said. I'd like to believe that better days are ahead also. Just today, in fact, or yesterday, I would say Esther Hayut, uh, who was the president of the Supreme Court, stepped down. Her term in office ended. And uh, she said, this is not the time for ceremonies uh, as there were supposed to have been. And I'm just leaving and that's it. And Uzi Fogelman, who was taken over as temporary president of the Supreme Court, issued a statement today and basically said that we're going to continue to stand by and to make sure that uh, we have an independent judiciary and that the people in need justice will receive it. And obviously they're going to come out with the rulings uh, probably even during the war, because now that Esther Hayut is gone, any case she sat in on, she has to issue any ruling uh, within 45 days. So even though she's out now, but the ruling has to come out in 45 days. So at some point in the next month and a half, we are going to see how the Supreme Court ruled on the cases that were brought before them on the reasonableness clause and also on uh, who has the right to suspend the prime minister and also whether or not the justice minister has to convene the Judicial Selection Committee. So these rulings are going to come out and it stands a chance of opening up some old wounds. As long as that happens during the battle, I think that will be set aside and people can work on that afterwards. The big question will be with this unity government is when those rulings come out, if the unity government remains intact long enough, so can they also come up with some sort of compromise on these judicial issues, because the Supreme Court is probably going to, in some cases, at least recommend sending it back to the Knesset or coming up with the legislative compromise rather than then coming down with the rule of the law and saying, this is our sock and that's it. And will the unity government last long enough to be able to solve those issues too? Well, that would be an even bigger plus. I think it's possible to summarize all of that by saying, Benjamin, fun and games lie ahead, at least politically. So thank you for joining us over from here at Homefront. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow, Benjamin. Looking forward and hopefully we'll have better news to report every day. Amen.